0: It's time for conversations about our food and how it's grown on Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson. if you're paying any attention at all to what's happening in the world, you know that there's reasons to be concerned about uh, food supplies and food supplies are related to transporting products, foods, but also not only transporting food, uh, transporting what it takes to grow food. Fertilizers have, been in the news too. And so we're going to take a look at the implications of this. And it really does have implications, I guess, for anybody that eats and anybody that grows food anywhere in the world in a, in a way. Uh, we'll cover all of that. And I want to welcome Matt Simpson, who is the CEO of Brazil Potash. Matt, welcome to Farmer Table Talk.
1: Thanks for having me, Roger.
0: We should explain, Matt, that although you're the CEO of Brazil Potash, you are operating in in Canada how is it that Canada is the is the base for Brazil potash
1: yeah sure i mean In Canada, we do have a a pretty deep history of funding earlier stage uh, natural resource development projects, in particular on our our Toronto Stock Exchange and the Venture Exchange, Uh, whereas in Brazil, they they don't have that that rich history of fundraising, albeit that they do have a very rich history of of developing natural resources projects in the country. Um, So our, our parent company, which is called the Forms Manhattan Group, has been operating in Brazil since the early 2000s. Uh, very comfortable with the country. And and typically what we do is we have the uh, fundraising and the head office people located in Toronto, but then all of the um, actual development work um, in the country. You know, uh, when we talk about
0: potash, potassium, MPK, you know, it, it makes your head spin sometimes. Uh, and especially it's gotten complicated for people that are consumers right now and wondering about the implications of all that's going on in the world, everything from climate change to the to the war in Ukraine and, and how there's disruptions in the, in the channels. And I suspect it's just a matter of time. I'm not exaggerating too much before everybody from the common gardener to any farms all over the world start feeling the impact of the availability of fertilizers now, now somewhere i don't know when did this happen that mpk is is kind of accepted i think worldwide that if you're going to be in agriculture or if you're going to be a gardener you you pay attention to npk which i believe it's a nitrogen phosphorus and potassium now when we're talking about potash I, I I assume, we'll explain. I don't want to assume anything. It, it explain to me why we're, you know, potash and its relationship to this potassium part that's the, that's the K and the NPK that everybody says we have to have to grow food.
1: Yeah. So, with, with the potassium, um, majority of it is in the form of what's called murate of potash, and, and that is basically potassium chloride and um it's about a 70 million ton a year market which is quite large and the product today sells for around circa uh, depending on where it's being delivered uh seven to eight hundred dollars per ton Uh, so to put it perspective uh you know this this is about a a 60 billion dollar a year uh, market so it's very very large why is it so important why should people care about having potassium Well, what it does is it strengthens the stem of a plant to make it more resilient to temperature swings drought and insect bites. So I think we're seeing a lot more variability in, in climate today. We're seeing uh, quite a bit of changes where we'll have extreme weather events, too much rain to all of a sudden not enough rain, and, and potash helps the plant survive through those periods.
0: Did you say it strengthens, were you saying the stem of the plant?
1: Correct, yes.
0: So you see these plants sometimes that just look sick, you know, that you whether you're in a garden or a field or something, and it's just they just seem kind of limp. Now, sometimes I've wondered whether this needed more more water, but is sometimes that is, is uh, um, mm-hmm. suggesting that there might be a, a problem, that they may be inadequate in potassium?
1: Yeah, it, it could be a nutrient imbalance, Roger. I mean, it, it there's a number of different things that could cause a plant to be limp. Um, but depending on what you're growing and where you're growing it, the, the, having the NPNK typically will increase your yield by up to 40%. Wow.
0: Now explain a little bit more, though. This potassium to potash, and so when you refer to, is there something done to the to the potassium as you just described it—the the chemical ingredients and so forth—that that that, uh, that it's better referred to than as potash because of some process that's that goes into effect?
1: No, I mean what, what potash actually is is a failed ocean. So you had a large body of water that dried up, and it left salt behind. And there's typically two types of salt. One of them is is the sodium chloride, otherwise known as, you know, table salt that you'd season your food with. And the other one is your your potassium chloride, and and that's your potash. Um, What happens is is when you mine this material, typically in the ground, it's about 30% uh, potassium chloride, and then about uh, 60% or 65-ish of sodium chloride, and then you have a few other uh, odds and sods. And uh, when you extract it, you, you then uh, concentrate it either through um, what's called flotation or through um, hot leaching. In, in both cases, it's the same effect. All you're doing is you're actually separating out the sodium chloride to result in a final product that has about 95% pure uh, potassium chloride or, or 60% K2O, as, as some people might more commonly uh, refer to it. Um, so that, that's that's the, the main type of, of uh, potash. The other one is called SOP or, or sulfate of potash. And that is um, where you don't have the chlorides. So if you have any sort of um, chloride sensitive crops, you're growing sometimes fruit or, or nuts, uh, SOP is applied. Uh, but it's much rarer and, and quite a bit more expensive. So your, your typical lawn fertilizer, what people would buy uh, for, for their gardens would typically be the, the more MOP type product.
0: So, you know, some of the people that listen to this right now are already scratching their head and saying, wait a minute, they're borderline telling me more than I want to know. <laughs> but, but some others that are, are saying, yeah, well, that's kind of intriguing. Because, again, whether you have a yard, whether you have a garden, whether you're a small farmer or some of these people that are getting started farming right now, uh, you can go to an extension agent. You can You can start doing your research and you're going to grow food. Um, you're gonna find yourself back at this MPK thing. And and so when you're saying this is what we need, unfortunately, these things we need aren't everywhere. You know, I'm I don't know where I could go get potash that's uh mined or processed in Northern California, for example. Uh maybe there, I don't know. But I would think around the world are there limited places that have had those. Ancient seas that you're referring to that become the source of where's the, you know, potassium, potash available today?
1: Yeah, there, there's very few of these sources around the world of, of any scale. Uh, the largest um, potash reserve is actually in Canada and the Saskatchewan basin, where you've got several massive companies like Nutrient, uh, BHP, K Plus S, and Mosaic, all sharing that one basin. Uh, We believe that the Amazon basin in Brazil has the potential to be the second largest based on uh, drilling that was done through the 60s and 70s. And then the third largest is actually in the Urals in in Russia and Belarus. Uh, There are smaller deposits in places like uh, Germany um, or or Jordan. Um, And then there's also the Dead Sea in Israel. Um, But it's really that the Canada, the the Belarusian and uh, Brazil that, that make up more than 40 or sorry more than 80 percent of the total
0: well people are going to guess ahead now i assume when we're mentioning the you know russia for example and that uh, we've had trade restricted because of the war in the ukraine and so it's gotten people not taking for granted basic fertilizers and and certainly I would think that potash and potassium would be among those. There's been some attention to the fact that some grains are starting to get out of the Ukraine, but but what about fertilizer? Has the shipment of fertilizers, production of fertilizers available to the world been affected by the the war in the Ukraine?
1: Yes, very much so. I mean even prior to the war in Ukraine Uh, Belarus was sanctioned by the United States and some European countries, and about 22% of the world's potash comes out of Belarus. And today, they're only shipping about 30% of what they would normally ship. Um, In terms of Russia, um, supplies out of Russia were initially quite impacted, uh, but are now starting to flow, albeit it's a little bit sensitive and controversial where some shipliners will refuse to pick up any product from Russia and it's a lot more difficult for countries to be able to pay Russia, given the uh, constraints with their currencies. So r- roughly, you know, call, call it circa 40% of the world's potash has been impacted by Russia invading Ukraine.
0: You know, the other thing I've heard about some of these changes is not only in responding to this situation, which hopefully will get better someday and that uh, we won't have indefinite war, but it has made people think about trying to compress their supply chains. Uh, that, that you know, because of things we've gone through, everything from the pandemic to the disruption in, in, in the Russia that we were talking about, that would say, well, you know what? It'd be a good idea to have some of this closer. And when you're going through all these countries that are producing most of it, What seemed to be underrepresented was the Southern Hemisphere. And uh, good for us. We've got you folks in Canada producing plenty that probably makes up a big share of what's a PNK uh, potassium potash share that we need to consume in North America. But has a lot of that product had to take the the slow boats to to South America for them to have that product available as well?
1: oh definitely i mean brazil is the world's second largest consumer of potash after china so brazil in itself consumes about 12 and a half million tons out of the 71 million tons that are are used in the world but it imports 95 percent of its need primarily from canada russia germany and israel so the, the brazilians are, are very very exposed uh to needing this this nutrient
0: so in your company um were you the first ones to, to take a look at this and say, wait a minute, there must be a better idea? I mean, surely sometime in in the history, they'd say, we may have the potential of being able to find what we need to produce it right here in, in Brazil or maybe somewhere else in South America. Uh, why hasn't that happened before now?
1: Well, this basin was actually discovered in the 60s and 70s by Petrobras, which is a large oil and gas company in Brazil. Uh, but they were looking for hydrocarbons. And, and when they found potash, you know, they didn't care because that's not what they were looking for. And at the time, potash was only selling for about a hundred dollars a ton. So it wasn't that economic. So Petrobras logged all of the information from their drill holes in the government archives and uh, didn't really do much with it. So when our company decided that we want to build a fertilizer project and, and we looked at the N, the P and the K, uh, we thought that, you know, potash arguably is, is the most important of the bunch. And that um, if you're going to build a potash mine, it made total sense to to build it in Brazil, given the the massive consumption in the country, plus its growth rate, which is about twice the rest of the world. It's it's growing in terms of their demand at about 3.7% a year, and the rest of the world's potash consumption demand is growing at about 1.7%. So it made a lot of sense uh, for some of the reasons that you just mentioned to have potash domestically in Brazil instead of traveling 9,000 to 12,000 miles.
0: You know, when people would hear us talk about developing something in Brazil, the, f- the first red flag that comes up is that I'll bet this company is going to, some company is going to go down there and figure out a way to uh, level rainforest and uh, to be able to mine this potash. What do, you, what do you say when skeptics raise that issue?
1: I'm glad you're bringing this up, Roger, because they're, are a number of people that as soon as they hear that you want to build a potash project in the Amazon state of Brazil, that they have these visions of natural geographic rainforest running through their head. And, and while it's true that a lot of the Amazon state is uh, tropical rainforest, the area where our project is located was deforested many decades ago by prior owners and is now low density cattle farming land. So it's literally like one cow per hectare that, that kind of roams this area. And there's a city of 34,000 people only about eight miles away from us that will supply a lot of the labor for the project. So in, in, in our case, um, not only are we not uh, impacting the rainforest, but we'll actually help protect it because some of these very poor people live off the land. They, they farm, they fish, but they also sometimes deforest. And, and they deforest because they need the money to be able to put food on the table. And what this project is going to do is employ about 1,200 people directly and four to five times that indirectly. So it'll give them a much better uh, living standard. A big issue in Brazil is um, burning of the Amazon rainforest. Yeah, right. and unlike California, it's not because of dryness and lightning strikes like you guys have. It's farmers actually burning the trees so that they can then get the, 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 the ash from the trees into the ground as a fertilizer. This is at the same time, they're not using proper application rates of the NPK to begin with. Yep. so it's a vicious cycle where they're they're increasing the amount of land under plow when they're not optimizing the yield on the land that they already have in place so mm-hmm. one of the things that we're going to be doing as a company is we're planning to go to some of these farmers that are poor, that are close to the more sensitive parts to the rainforest and say to them we'll, we'll sell you our potash at a price discount if you commit to not burning the rainforest and we'll that's great have people come in and optimize the soil chemistry for you, so it's it's a combination of what are you growing and what is the chemistry of your soil to maximize the yields and not charge them for that. That's a great story.
0: So describe for the, the area to me. Then uh, they're not really kind of in a jungle or in a rainforest per se, like you said. They've been deforested years ago and was pastures currently. So the land that you will be in, do you, is it like strip mining? Do you do you go in? Uh, how do you how do you get to the material that you need?
1: no this is underground mining rogers the footprint on surface is about the size of two football fields so you you basically uh sink two shafts you 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 drill two holes in the ground um these holes are about 2500 feet deep so they're quite deep in the ground and then all of the mining is done all underground and then you bring the potash up to the surface uh where you then crush it Um, you put it in hot water. And that's what dissolves the the sodium chloride and the potassium chloride. And then you slowly cool it down to then produce the the 95% pure potash that we then truck five miles to a a river and load it on barges for transportation to the farmers. And that sodium chloride we, we dry stack on the surface. And then over time, we actually take the sodium chloride from the surface and we put it back underground such that at the end of the day, there's no footprint on surface with this project
0: that's interesting so you're actually burying it but but is there a concern that otherwise it contributes in some way to climate change or or you know global warming uh, if you didn't bury it because uh, obviously with carbon you'd like to get carbon put back into the ground but is, well, in our
1: case it's, it's just sodium chloride that you're putting back into the ground so there's no carbon that, that's being buried and I think it's also important for, for uh, your listeners to know that we'll connect to Brazil's national electricity grid, which is 85% renewable sourced. So quite a bit of hydroelectric power in particular. And by doing that, we'll actually generate about 80% less emissions than a similar potash plant in Canada, which by the way is 65% renewables, the next best in the world. If you compare it to say that the Russians or the Belarusians, it'd be over 90% less emissions. So this this actually contributes quite positively. Um, it'll actually reduce an estimated 1.3 million tons a year of greenhouse gas emissions, which is equivalent to planting sixty million trees through a combination of both again a, a higher renewable sourced energy, but also because you're not unnecessarily transporting the product around twelve thousand miles. Wow, what a story.
0: And I had no idea that you would be going underground like that and, and deep shafts. So it's kind of like the old shaft coal mining that used to be going down and a half mile under, underground. And when you get this product, and so people are down there mining and they're, you know, putting it back, you know, getting it back up to the surface. What does it look like? I mean, what's the raw material? Are these just, you know, large chunks of rocks or what, what does this material that you mine look like?
1: Yeah, so it's it's a it's a pink granular salt. So if you've ever seen a, um, kind of a, a pink table salt that might be in a in a, in a granular form, that, that's kind of what it looks like at the end of the day. So in, in the ground itself, it's it's a it's a solid block of uh, of salt. But when you mine it, you have what's called a continuous boring machine, which literally has like a a, a huge um, circular um, head that just kind of tunnels through the the, the salt. And, uh, and that's what then gets hoisted up to the surface.
0: So you say that you're going to employ 1,200 people there. Uh, are you having outreach right now with the communities uh, so that they can see what it might mean to them? And I would imagine that the local, you know, Taxing agencies are going to be interested too to see whether you're not able to help schools or hospitals and other things that are in the in those communities. But how is that going on this whole com- conversation taking place as to what you may offer the community and what you, they should expect from it and how much they're trying to welcome your coming into the area to work with you.
1: Yeah, we've been very active in the local community ever since starting this project. And, and the welcome sign to the city of Otaz is where our project is located. It actually says, welcome to the land of milk and potash.
0: <laughs>
1: and some of the things that we're, we're really proud of that we've done in the local community, um, we run a, a before and after school program for about 170 uh, underprivileged children where they get two meals a day. They get tutoring on their schoolwork and they also learn practical life skills like how to grow food. And we've been doing that for, for many, many years. Uh, what we've also done is we created a life-size board game that um, was used for children in the schools about how potash is extracted from the ground, how it's used um, to fertilize uh, plants so that they can increase the amount that's grown and how after you then eat uh, the, the food that it returns back to the earth. So at the end of the day, it kind of is, is, is full cycle with potash, it's from earth to earth. So. When we have discussions with the community, we want to be very open about our project, make sure that um, we're responding to any questions and concerns because you know there will be concerns with transient people coming in for construction of the project and that does at times bring bring problems. Um, but at the end of the day, we want to leave a net positive legacy for the community where we're not only making commitments to employ um, a minimum number of local people, but also local indigenous and to provide Training to people so they could start their own companies that could provide support to us. So you might have someone that wants to run a trucking business or another person that wants to provide food to our employees or cut their hair. All all these are going to be opportunities for people to realize some sort of ambition or dream that they've always had that we're going to help make real.
0: Oh, I think these stories are great, and I and I love to hear about it. Some people, when they hear about it, immediately are suspicious of greenwashing, not just of your company, but just they hear companies uh, saying that they're doing these good things, and they just assume, oh, they're trying to put a good spin on it. I suspect you're trying to, um, keep transparency in what you're doing and, and keep the story out there, you know, I think we're getting the story out there today. I'm glad to be able to have this conversation with you in the podcast, but how else are you making it transparent to not only the people in the community that you're affecting, but the broader audience of, you know, in Brazil or globally in the food supply of letting people see the impact that you're having on the communities and also really on the climate. Um, how are you getting those stories? Are you going to keep those stories out there so that you can get some, uh, I think, respect and, and support for what you're doing?
1: I think it's a combination of both getting in front of people like yourself, Roger, to be able to tell our story and make sure that we're communicating facts and, and not fictions that sometimes uh, come out. And I think it's also important that we cite actual concrete examples of things that we did. So it's not just here's what we're going to do or, or ideas. You know, let's let's talk about both that, but also what we've done. And, and to talk a little bit more about other things that we've done that we're, we're quite proud of. Uh, when, when COVID first struck, the city of Otaz actually shut themselves off from the city of Manaus, which has 1.7 million people. It's about 110 miles away by road. Because they didn't want COVID getting into the community because they didn't have the medical facilities to to take care of people. Uh, What they inadvertently did, though, Rogers, they shut themselves off from some food staples and hygienic supplies. And we got an urgent call from the mayor saying, you know, we're we're desperate. Can you help? None of the NGOs are here. You know, no one's here to help. What can you guys do? And we delivered over 2,500 food and hygiene baskets to the local community. And then when the COVID vaccine actually got uh, developed and was being distributed, it was our trucks and our boats that transported medical personnel around to be able to dis- to deliver that vaccine. So th- those are things that we've done to show that, you know, it's not just talk. We're, we're actually there for the community.
0: You know, and I'm sure there are people that are going to hope you're there for the community for a really long time. And maybe long enough that the kids that are going to school, you know, the kids of the people that work in your operations, can go off to college and come back and get a job with you someday uh, i imagine that'll take a while to get that cycle that cycle going but uh, do you envision that being what happens in the future
1: oh definitely roger i mean because this community is a little bit more remote to to the large city of manaus um you, you do tend to find with these type of operations that you have multi-generational employees and families are really proud that you know my my dad or my mom started at your company, and now I'm working for your company, and my kids are going to work for your company, and, and and that's kind of nice to see these days that you can have that kind of loyalty, especially with the smaller community that you don't necessarily see so much in bigger cities.
0: You know, another concern that's all over the world right now is the uh, inflation, especially food prices, and if you're farming, all the input costs for farming. So, I would suspect that. That uh, farming in Brazil will end up having some benefits of not having to have the potash come from so far away. And um and I I'm, would imagine too that in North America, where you've got a supply, the Canadian com- company has a supply of taking care of North America that's feeling the shortages and the high prices related to Ukraine and and other issues like that. There aren't any issues quite like Ukraine, I should, should add. But uh, that, in fact, it's more competitive. I'm having a hard time framing this as a question, Matt, because on the one hand, you think of a company does want to get higher and higher prices if he can, because your your job is to try to get return to your stockholders. But on the other hand, um, when there is more supply and you're cutting out some of your costs, your customers should end up benefiting, and it's you know rather than the shortages that you were alluding to earlier.
1: Yeah, so one of the challenges with farmers is that they're not going to be able to buy a Panamax vessel of potash, you know, 60,000 plus tons by themselves. And inevitably what happens, especially in countries like Brazil, is that you have blenders. They'll they'll buy the the nitrogen, they'll buy the phosphate, and they'll buy the potash, and they'll mix them together. And they'll take on the, the, the cost of holding that product until the farmers are ready to buy it. But in exchange for taking that on, they'll charge the farmer a $50 to $80 per tonne premium over what they paid for the product because they need to make money. And in our case, because we're in Brazil, we'll be able to sell in much smaller lot sizes. So the farmer won't have to buy a Panamax vessel. They can buy it by the barge load from us. And that's going to do a number of things. It's going to cut out the middleman, so to speak, the blender, because there's no reason why you need to have the NPK all blended. You can do single nutrient application on your farm field especially these mega farmers that are getting bigger and bigger and it also save about 107 days of transportation that's currently incurred because in brazil the ports are so congested that it typically takes around 55 days to get access to the port after the boat arrives so you spend roughly 50 days in transportation be it's initially on, on a railway and then on a boat and then on a truck Uh, but you also incur all this delay because of port congestion. All of that gets alleviated in our case because our our project is right beside a river. And currently, we already have um, quite a bit of soybean, cotton, corn that goes to a transshipment terminal only 40 miles upstream from us um, with those barges then passing empty, going back down to where the farms are located. So instead of having those barges go back empty, we'll uh, load our potash on those barges and go straight back down to the farmer's. So, lots of benefits in that, that area that the farmers can uh, can benefit from. I think uh, another area to, to talk about, Roger, is when, when you rehandle the potash multiple times, from again, train to boat to truck, you generate fines. And when a farmer puts the potash on their field, what they want is, is a granular, so that granular falls down to the ground, but they don't want it to dust up in the air and blow over to their neighbor's farm. So, in our case, because you're also rehandling it quite a bit less, there'll be substantially lower fines generation. So it's a higher quality product. And and those aren't things we charge for. That just comes with the product.
0: What concerns are there for pollution from potash? Uh, uh nitrogen there's a lot of different concerns and and sometimes when you're applying nitrogen now through drip irrigation is primarily what we use in in California buried drip usually and it's fertigation we call it you know irrigation putting the fertilizer actually in in it but with that there's worries about nitrous oxide which you know is a greenhouse gas and it gets into the system, are there greenhouse gas implications from either the production or application or use of potash?
1: There are not greenhouse gas implications that way, but there are chlorides. So there are sometimes concerns about the chloride levels that could impact some of the groundwater through over-application of fertilizer or potash in particular, Uh, but it's very different than than nitrogen. I mean, think, you know, nitrogen, it's not only the issue that you raised that's of concern, it's also generally how it's made, which is through the burning of a hydrocarbon. And that's that then is, is you know, uh, with ammonia being produced. So we, we don't have any of those issues. This is a, a naturally occurring salt in the ground that, that is extracted again through either heating it up in order to separate the, the potassium from, from the sodium. So there's no, uh, other than I guess the energy that's put in, which in our case is again 85% renewable, no, uh, no substantial um, off gassing in that regard. And then when you apply it to the field, um, similarly, it, it substantially increases the, the the yields of the product. So arguably, you're you're significantly reducing the amount of land under plow, which means you can also leave more forest uh, alone to to grow.
0: Well, and that's a good point too. But back on the nitrogen, it takes you start the whole process off with a lot of natural gas. So uh, to to presume produce this uh, uh, ammonia. But what about, uh, what about runoff? What concerns are there for runoff and the implications of runoff for, for the application of potash?
1: Yeah, I'm not an expert in this area, Roger, but I, I do know that the chlorides are probably the biggest sensitivity. And that's why sometimes people do use the uh, the sulfate of potash because you don't have the chlorides involved. Um, but it does come down to a cost issue and an availability issue. Um, that, that product is only about one-tenth the market and it's almost uh, twice the price typically. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, it's a, it's a fascinating area, and I'm fascinated by what you're doing, and I think it's one of those areas that get overlooked. I mean, there's a lot of conversations right now about food inflation, but I think you take a few more minutes and say, well, let's get down to basics here, and you can't get much more basic than fertilizers that are necessary to produce the food we need to have, and also having the the fertilizer more available in different regions of the world rather than just one that has to be shipped all the way from one hemisphere to the other. So I appreciate what you're doing. And and I think as you you look ahead to getting this fully engaged, when do you see the fruits of your labors? Uh, when? How far down the road is it several years that you start seeing this is really getting well established and this community is doing much better because we've got this working here and it's, it's having the positive impacts you're hoping for? Is that going to take three, four or five years? What's what you're feeling?
1: Well, we're ideally going to start construction of this project very early next year. So we already have done a substantial amount of the development work. We completed what's called a feasibility study, which just means an engineering study to understand how we're going to build this um, mine and and, and processing plant and what it's going to cost to to not only build it, but also operate it. Uh, We've done our environmental impact and social assessments. Uh, We've done public hearings of over 4,500 people. And now we're completing additional uh, public hearings with the Indigenous. Uh, There's a local tribe called the Murrah Group, And we're doing those consultations under what's called International Labour Organization 169. So those are currently ongoing, and we expect them to be done by the end of the year, um, upon which we'll then get our installation license to start construction, and it'll take us about four years. So once we start construction, right then we're going to employ a large number of people for that work. And then once we shift into operating the mine, I think what might be interesting for your listeners is that we currently have um, proven Economic reserves supporting a 34-year life on the project, but that's based on drilling only 10% of the basin's potential. So I can't tell you this is 340 years of life at our, our initial production rate of 2.4 million tons, which will supply about 20% of Brazil's need. Uh, but I can tell you that it's really just the tip of the iceberg. This this is a multi-generational asset. It could be easily over 100 years, possibly well over 200 years of life that this project could run.
0: You know, I'd be interested in having you come back and do a podcast with me and maybe bring a representative to a, a Zoom interview with me that might be from the indigenous group or uh, the, the the mayor or whoever the leader is in that local community to join you that I could say, okay, we've been talking about, it. how do you feel about it? How's it going so far? Would you be open to uh, to that sort of thing in a year or so?
1: Yeah, we'd be happy to do that, Roger. I mean you you'd need to probably arrange a translator because these functions oh, are sure. sure. You, so I could I- arrange the translator for you. Um but we have tremendous support, uh particularly from, from the local mayor who's excited about this project.
0: You know, I'd love to do that because again, I think people are skeptical. They've just gotten to the point that they they don't trust government. They don't trust big companies. They look at globalization often as being just just one-sided. And that when a company is making the efforts that you are to make it a win-win, so to speak, and then tie in the local communities and has the potential that your program has, I think we'd like to keep them aware of it. And in fact, one other way for them to probably keep up to speed is if you have a website or uh, some place that people could could look periodically if they want to check you out more of what you have planned and how it's going. Is there some place that they can find you?
1: Certainly. So our, our website is um, brazilpodash dot
0: Well, that's pretty easy to remember. So Matt Simpson, the CEO of Brazil Podash, I, I appreciate your being on Farm to Table
1: Talk. Thank you. Great uh, to speak with you, also Roger. I've enjoyed it.
0: You've been listening to Farm to Table Talk with your host, Roger Wasson.